0: Uh, justice is our topic today, and to get us oriented to the subject, I want to show you a picture of a man by the name of Andrew Brunson. There's Andrew Brunson. Maybe you've heard about Andrew Brunson. Uh, Andrew is a native of Montreat, North Carolina, but he has lived for most of his life in uh, Turkey, uh, and he has served as the pastor of the Izmir Resurrection Church. So he's a Christian pastor. He's an American. He's living in Turkey. He was arrested in October of 2016. He's been in a Turkish prison since then without any formal charges or legal proceedings against him. And he is accused by the Turkish government of running a terrorist organization and participating in the failed coup in the summer of 2016. So his first court appearance is actually coming up. It's going to be on April 16th. And if he's convicted in this trial that he'll have, he will be sentenced sentenced to 35 years in prison. Now, uh, most observers of Andrew Brunson's case uh, recognize that these are trumped-up charges. It's part of uh, Turkey's provocation. They're trying to poke the United States in the eye. Uh, Brunson said about this, he said, Let it be clear, I am in prison not for anything I have done wrong, but because of who I am, a Christian pastor. I desperately miss my wife and children, yet I believe this to be true. It is an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ.'" As many have before me, my deepest thanks to all for all those around the world who are standing with and praying for me. We're going to talk about justice this morning. Will there be justice for Andrew Brunson? He's just one of a case of many cases. We live in a world that's uh, fine. Thanks, Mike. We live in a world where we're inundated with stories of injustice. Uh, here are a few of them that come to mind that I've heard about recently. In Myanmar, the Rohingya Muslims are experiencing a genocide that started in October 2016. Since then, 680,000 people of this uh, uh, group, this ethnic group of Muslims, have been fleeing Myanmar and are living in neighboring uh, Bangladesh. Will there be justice for the Rohingya? Uh, in late February, 110 girls were kidnapped in northern Nigeria by Boko Haram. This is the second time this has happened. When, when it, the first time it happened, it was a hashtag, rescue our girls, and now it happened again. 110 more gone. Uh, so, uh, the youngest of them are 12. As of 2012, there were 27 million people around the world in slavery. Take everyone in the state of Pennsylvania and double that number and you don't have yet the number of people living in slavery in the world. And the average price of a slave, a trafficked human being is $90. Uh, I'm wondering how you would evaluate justice in our own country uh, and how (laughs) right now there's a lot of rage over justice and not a lot of clarity. Um, I read this week a new study about racial gaps in the United States. Today in the United States, average national black income is 60% of whites. So on average, 60% of whites. But what's worse, I think, average black wealth wealth is only 7% of whites. And the reason that disparity is there mostly has to do with the practice of redlining and federal housing practices that are discriminatory that didn't enable grandparents of the African-Americans today to accumulate wealth in homes like your grandparents did. Last week I read an article about a well-known pastor uh, who has been accused of moral impropriety. His story was in the newspaper, one of the major newspapers in the world. He denies everything. He says that the people who are accusing him are bent on destroying his reputation. So who should we believe? Will this man get justice? Will he either be vindicated or will uh, he be uh, punished? There's a family of churches that we have a lot in common with. They have been embroiled over the last uh, several years in lawsuits about how they handled cases of sex abuse in their own congregations. There's accusations and there's denials. Will there ever be justice? What sometimes overwhelms me about thinking about issues like this, especially in the United States, uh, is that um, in the midst of what I think are some real and genuine justice issues in our country? In the midst of them, there are a lot of people, and you know this is a stereotype, but there's a lot of people. Most of them are on college campuses who use the the word justice to describe an agenda that doesn't seem to have anything really to do with justice. So, for example, you can be accused uh, of uh, uh, um, injustice. By a social justice warrior for assuming someone else's gender pronoun, that's not injustice, that's just nonsense. I, I am confused, and I am sometimes discouraged by this. There are justice problems everywhere, aren't there? There's justice problems overseas, there's justice problems in business and school systems and churches and prison systems in local communities and families, and justice problems in my heart and in yours too. And yet, the God we worship is a God who cares deeply about justice. He includes dozens and dozens and dozens of references to justice in his book, in the Bible. And we're going to look at one of those scenes in scripture this morning and that deals with justice. And uh, we find it here in the first 14 verses of Second uh, Samuel chapter 21. Now, before we read it, we're going to come back to the issue of justice, but before we read it, I want to spend some time orienting you to the text and getting a handle on how these last few chapters of 2 Samuel function in relation to the whole book. Let's step back for just a minute and try to remember the whole theme of the book of Judges. What, uh, sorry, we're not in Judge. Well, we could talk about Judges, but that's not the goal today. Uh, let's talk about the theme of 2 Samuel. Uh, 2 Samuel, the second Samuel, the question that second Samuel sets before us is what kind of king do God's people need? What kind of king do God's people need? And the answer to the question is we need a king who is after God's own heart. We need a king like David. There's, there's no king at all in the Bible like David. Based on the promises of God and God's sustaining power, David reaches these amazing heights. And yet, in the text, as the story ends chronologically of 2 Samuel, David ends with tragic weakness. He's been tossed overboard by his own lust and by his own pride and his own fear. So the end of David's story chronologically in the Bible ends with comparative weakness to counter that impression so that you don't get the wrong idea about who David is and what David accomplished in his life. The narrator of 2 Samuel ends his book with this, this epilogue. These stories that are at the end of 2 Samuel, they're not in chronological order, but they're intended to remind us of these books, the book's central themes. And, and they're formed together in one of the features of the Old Testament, a chiasm. A chiasm. Have you ever heard anybody use that phrase? It's a unique literary feature. Well, it's not unique to the Old Testament, unique to this age of the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's, and it's not difficult to understand. If you have your note sheet, you can look. And, and, and here are all uh, of the, the episodes in these last few chapters written there. Um, so there's six stories or six individual units of text in these last uh, three chapters of Second Samuel, and they match one another and they balance one another. So the first and the last one are about a national calamity and how David responded. And then the second and the fifth one are about David's about David's soldiers who fought with him. They match. And then the third and the fourth one are both poems. The third one is a psalm, and the fourth one is David's last words. And and it's a chiasm, and you can see. Uh, where we get the name chiasm from and, and how it's outlined. If you I, I put that dashed line in there to, to show you this. This is how everybody outlines chiasms. There's several of them in the Bible. And um, that's half of uh, half of a what is it? half of a letter X right? Or half of the, the Greek letter chi hence the word chiasm. Because Xism did not sound very good. So it's chiasm right there. Now, there's two advantages to having chiasms. The first one is it helps you with memory helps you remember, think your way through the text so you can remember things because you you know that one and six match and two and five match and three and four match. So it helps you with memory. And it also, one of the purposes of chiasms is to, to put the emphasis where it belongs and namely here, the emphasis is in the middle. These are the most important things. When we get to them, David's psalm of praise and David's last words, this is the most important thing that the author of Samuel wants you to remember as you finish his book. So that's what a chiasm does, and we see it here. And, and because of that, we're going to finish this book by talking to the text out of order. So today we're going to do uh, the first 14 verses of chapter 21. And then next time when we're in 2 Samuel, it'll be in uh, two weeks from today, we're going to actually go to the end of the book. Some of you will be really excited because you'll think we're done, and we won't be. It'll be a cruel joke. And we're going to talk about that last, the sixteen. Then the week after that, we're going to talk about the second and the fifth. And we're going to talk about David's mighty men, all those names that I'm going to have to read. Oh, it'll be beautiful. And then we're going to spend one week talking about David's psalm. And then on Mother's Day, we're going to finish this Mother of All sermon series from Samuel uh, by talking about David's last words. They'll be my last words from Second Samuel 2. So that's the plan. That's, that's how the, the text works. That's the structure. Now, what does it mean? Here's the question again. What kind of king do God's people need? And the answer to that question is, God's people need a king who pursues justice. God's people need a king who pursues justice. Let's read through the text. All right, let's do that. Now, when I read it, you're going to struggle, I think, with a little bit of the content. There's something so distracting in here that you hardly, you might, might miss the message of the text. I'm telling you it's about justice, and some of you will wonder where the justice is as, as we read it. So I'm going to read it. We're going to work through the text. We're going to work through some of the issues involved. And then I hope to uh, help you, before we finish, apply it. How do we follow Jesus in an unjust world? So uh, I hope to have some suggestions for you by the time we finish. Let's read it, though, shall we? Second uh, Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is an account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he's put the Gibeonites to death. That's why you're having this famine. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites, if you can't remember... We're not part of Israel, but were are survivors of the uh, Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand gold or silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mehalothite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told that Ai's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done what she'd done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead, just in case you don't remember. They had stolen their bodies from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down in Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zela and Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of his people. So there's no specific date to when this happened. It just says, in the reign of David. I think it happened before Absalom's rebellion. Um, That's probably when it happened. And the text says, though, that there's a famine. Now, God in his providence had put the Israelites in Palestine, in this land, that is very dependent on annual rain. They need God to provide rain for them. He put them in a place where they would know their dependence on him. And, and it was common, that, you know, uh, you'd have a bad rainy season, not enough rain, and you'd have a bad harvest one year. That was, that was to be expected. It was, it was normal. But now it's happened three years in a row, three years of terrible harvests. So King David, on behalf of the people, inquires of God, and God brings up the Gibeonites. God is angry with the Israelites because of how they treated the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites, do you remember the Gibeonites? Where have we heard them before? Well, they don't play a big role in the Bible. The Gibeonites were a small tribe of people and they lived in the promised land before Joshua led the Israelites into it. So they were native Canaanites living there in the land. And they were there in the land when Joshua started coming in and he, they saw Joshua and the Israelites defeat and decimate Jericho. They saw them defeat and decimate the, the people of Ai. They, they, they just watched as the, the Israelites are, are going through the land defeating people and the Gibeonites don't want to be destroyed. So they come up with a plan and they go to Joshua and they lie to him. They say, Joshua, we're from so far away. We are from really far away and, and we've come and we want you to make a treaty with us. And this story is told in Joshua 9. And in Joshua 9, the text says, Joshua did not inquire of the Lord. There's a condemnation right there. And he makes a treaty with the Gibeonites. And then they find out that the Gibeonites lied and that they lived really close, in fact, in the land. But they made this treaty with them. So look at Joshua 9, verse 19. I wrote it down here. The whole assembly... Remember, this is 500 years before David. The whole... uh, 400... The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, Joshua, because of this terrible decision. But all the leaders answered, We've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. We made a promise. This is what we'll do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. That's important because if you try to kill the Gibeonites, God's wrath is going to fall on you. It says right in the text, I'll read it. They continued. Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly, so the leader's promise to them was kept. So there was this covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites, but Saul, we have no record of this in the Bible. There's no story here. Saul had broken this covenant and had plotted and planned to destroy the Gibeonites. He did it, the text says in 2 Samuel 21, out of zeal of the Lord. Okay, great but, but your zeal for God does not, does not justify you breaking a covenant. And notice here in this text, God will not countenance this injustice. God cares deeply about justice. He is angry with the Israelites because of the injustice that they inflicted on the Gibeonites. So he sends a famine. This is good news for us as we think about this text. Because it reminds us that God cares about injustice. All those stories, all those people that I mentioned at the beginning, God cares deeply about injustice. It's important to know because injustice is not just an issue that we think about on a national or international scale. Everyone in this room at some point in time has been the victim of injustice. We have been harassed or bullied ...or abused. Our experiences vary. They experience Our experiences vary greatly. Some of you in this room have experienced a grievous injustice. You have been hurt uh, t- terribly and nothing has been done about it. Does God care about that injustice? Does he really care? Christopher Wright is a British Bible teacher. He's uh, well worth reading. He's a fine scholar... He once wrote about a friend of his, a man who's an Indian by birth and also a follower of Christ. This this man uh, grew up in, uh, he was a Hindu when he was born, and he grew up a member of the Dalit caste in India. He was one of the untouchables. And his whole family, for as long as he could remember, had suffered greatly at the hands of high caste hindus in his village harassment violence injustice so this young man when he was growing up was abused like this and he sees his family being abused like and he grew up angry very angry he was determined to get revenge in fact he studied really hard because he wanted to get good grades so he could get to a university graduate from the university and then come home in a high position and use his high position uh to punish all of his family's enemies When he got to university, he found in his room a Bible translated into his own language, Telugu, his native language. Uh, He'd never read the Bible before, but he uh, knew it was a Christian holy book, so he just opened it at random, and his Bible fell open to, fell just by chance, to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21 is the story of Ahab and Naboth. Remember this story? So Ahab was a terrible king, violent, greedy. Uh, wicked, wicked king. And he plotted to steal the land of uh, Naboth, who was an ordinary farmer. And this young Hindu man read the story and saw himself in the pages of Scripture. It's exactly what happened to me. The people in power in out my land, my village, have used their power to steal land from my family. They've made false accusations. They have been brutal, uh, brutalizing my family. And he read, he read the same story in the Bible. And then he read on in the Bible and he found out that God sent a prophet named Elijah who in his own name, and God's name, denounced Ahab and said that Ahab would be judged and, and punished by God, which astounded this young man. There are millions of gods in Hinduism. He could have chosen for millions of gods to worship and here was a God who was defending this, this suffering an oppressed person. He said to Christopher Wright one day he said I never knew such a God existed. There's a God who exists who cares about the oppressed and cares about people who are who are uh, abused and 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 mistreated. Well, he kept reading the Bible and he eventually came to uh, learn about Jesus and his death and resurrection and he also learned about the need to forgive people, but Notice his road to conversion to becoming a Christian came because he was greatly comforted by the fact that there is a God in the heavens who cares deeply about justice. And here God is stepping in with the Israelites, and he has sent this famine because he cares about what was done to the Gibeonites. Will there be justice? Will there be justice for Andrew Brunson? Will there be justice for the Rohingya Muslims? Will there be justice for slaves? Will there be justice for you? God cares deeply about injustice. Now, that's very good news, but I'm I'm interested in in knowing what you think about what happens next and how David solves the problem. The Gibeonites, they come very humbly and they say to David, well, we won't ask for money. And, you know, we really don't have the authority to, to put anybody to death. Hint, hint. And David says, what do you want? And they ask for seven men from Saul's family. They're going to execute them and expose them. Here are seven men who are going to be punished for what their father and grandfather did. Not for their own crimes, but for what Saul, the man who was their father or their grandfather, what he did. Now, is that just... I, I I this is distracting in the text, I think. Trust me, this story is about David and how awesome he is and about how he pursues justice. It's great, but I'm so distracted by this that you almost forget about David. And in that the how how is this even fair? How is this possible? How could God approve this? Let's think about the particularities here first. The Gibeonites asked for seven men. Saul put more than... He slaughtered more than seven men. These are seven symbols, seven symbolic men. And their bodies are going to be exposed publicly. That's the plan. Because that's what Saul did to the Gibeonites. When he slaughtered them, he left their bodies out for the birds and the animals to eat. This great um, a desecration, this great disgrace. But how is it just to punish Saul's sons and his grandsons for what he did? I'll give you the easy answer to that question. I don't think it's the right answer, but if you want the easiest answer, here it is. The easiest answer to this question is to assume that these seven men participated with Saul in the slaughter of the Gibeonites. Wouldn't Wouldn't that make that easy? That that they were there with Saul, you know, Saul didn't do this slaughtering by himself. he, he probably had his seven sons, uh, f- uh, two sons, and five grandsons, or the other way around, with him, and and they together slaughtered, and, and make them part guilty. That would be the easiest solution. I don't think that's the solution to the problem, though. Uh, the reason I don't think that's that solves the problem is because when David is looking for these descendants, verse seven, he's not looking for the guilty party. He's just, by mentioning Mephibosheth and he pushes Mephibosheth out, he, he's just looking for seven descendants. He's not looking for the guilty ones. You see? They were probably too young too, these, these seven people. If they didn't participate with Saul here, um, we, have, we have a problem. Look at what Deuteronomy 24, 16 says. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children to uh, put to death for their parents, each will die for their own sins. Well, how is what happens in this passage in keeping with this segment of the law? Except, on the other hand, in the Bible, there are times when people do suffer for the sins of their ancestors. I think one of the best examples of this is in Joshua chapter 7 with a man named Achan. Achan. Achan was a soldier in Israel's army when they defeated Jericho. Achan stole for himself and took some of the things that were to be dedicated to God. And Joshua 7 says that under God's command, Joshua and the people stoned Achan, his sons, his daughters, and even his cattle, his donkeys, and his sheep. The sheep get stoned for Achan's sins. I don't think they were that bad. That's terrible. It's terrible. I I don't think the sheep participated in the crime and yet the sheep are stoned with Achan for what he did. Uh, So that's one example of, of, of children suffering for their parents' sins. We spent the last how many weeks talking about how four of David's sons died prematurely because of his sins of adultery and murder. So we have this verse in Deuteronomy 24 and that we have these stories in which uh, sons and daughters suffer for the crimes of their parents. What do we do about that? Well, Bob Chisholm, listen to what Bob Chisholm says. How can this apparent contradiction be harmonized? In each case in which children are punished for their parents' sin, direct rebellion against God is in view. Because of the principle of corporate solidarity, we're going to come back to that, corporate solidarity, the sovereign God of the universe has the freedom to judge a couple's descendants when divine authority has been directly challenged. But God does not allow humans being finite and prone to injustice and excessive vengeance the same freedom in civil cases. So Deuteronomy 24 says, we human beings are not to punish sons and daughters for the crimes of their parents and vice versa. But God sometimes can and does. God takes covenant violations very seriously. If you think about this, you know this intuitively a bit, that that all covenant violation brings consequences for the people around you. When you, when you break your word, there are consequences. You know that just from a natural standpoint, just, just think with me for a minute about, uh, well, the greatest example of this I can think of is divorce, right? In a divorce, a marriage covenant is dissolved. How far and wide do the ripple effects of a divorce go? Certainly it washes over your children, most especially, right? And then there's your parents, your siblings, your nieces and nephews. God takes covenants very seriously and the, the, the consequences of covenant violations spread. They do it naturally in the case of a divorce. When you break your promises, you break the connections of a culture. We all suffer. There are times in the Bible when a person's sins bring terrible consequences for the members of his family. Here's one of them. And if if that troubles you, I I understand. But I, I want to advise you to be careful about being too eager to break that connection. Because the connection like that is central to what we believe the good news of the Bible is. We believe that human beings naturally born are in corporate solidarity with Adam. And when he sinned in the garden, we participated in that sin, and we inherited guilt from him. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, I am a sinner and rebel against God, and I I am worthy of his righteous wrath for two reasons. Because I have chosen to sin, and because I inherited sin and guilt from my father Adam when I was born. But, but for those who are in Christ, we by this same principle of corporate solidarity also inherit by faith his righteousness from Jesus. So you may feel uncomfortable with this connection that the Bible is making here between Saul and his sons, but remember it's at the root of, of the gospel that we preach, that you're a sinner because of Adam and you can be saved because of Jesus, because of your corporate connection by faith with Jesus. And what's interesting here in the text, David, the Bible is, is laudatory of David. He, he does exactly the right thing. In fact, this thing that it mentions, Mephibosheth, it's odd, there's two Two Mephibosheths, if, if you're picking names for your family, you want them to run through, okay, that's not one I suggest. I'm just saying these two cousins, Well, David spared one, and David spared the son Mephibosheth because of the covenant he had with Jonathan, so Saul breaks covenants and David keeps covenants. It's in the passage. So it's what it's saying. David is acting rightly here. Justice, though, these, these men are executed, and justice isn't quite satisfied yet because we have this dear woman, Rizpah. Huh. Rizpah. I'm fairly confident that Rizbah has never been the subject of a Mother's Day sermon, but she should be. So these, these men are executed, and they're left out in the wilderness, uh, exposed, and she camps out. She, she puts up this uh, cloth, She spreads it out for herself, not on the rock underneath to lay on, but over the rock to give herself a little lean-to. And and she is there, she dedicates herself to protecting her son from the worst disgrace possible upon death, not being buried, left to be exposed, this dear woman. And her motherly devotion draws in David's attention, and, and he responds, and he goes, and takes the bodies and buries them and he buries them with Saul and he buries them with Jonathan too. He gets Jonathan and Saul's bones and buries them. He gives them a true and final resting place and then finally upon his intercession God relents. Justice now finally has been satisfied. That's the story. What does it mean? It tells us that the king that God's people needs most pursues justice. David inherited a case of injustice, and it's to his credit that he fixed what Saul had broken. As the people's leaders before God, David steps in, and by his action, he averts the wrath of God in order to restore blessing to God's people. So, what kind of king do God's people need? God's people need a king who pursues justice. It's not difficult. Not difficult. This, this sermon preaches itself. It's not that difficult to draw a line from David to his great son, the Lord Jesus. One of the reasons, brothers and sisters, we long for the Lord Jesus to return is because when he comes, he will bring perfect justice. That's one of the promises of the Bible. Look at Isaiah chapter 42, 1. It says, Here is my servant whom I, I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. While at the same time time the Lord Jesus comes with gentleness... For broken people. Notice, he doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. Do you feel sometimes like a smoldering wick? The Lord Jesus won't snuff out smoldering wicks, but he will at the same time come with perfect justice. What kind of king do God's people need? We need a king who pursues justice. Like David here, but more importantly, like the Lord Jesus when he comes the issues of justice or injustice are so broad and so wide in our, our world. Who can fix them? Well, the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, his fixing them will be perfect. We know that the Lord Jesus is committed to justice and we know how the Lord Jesus is committed to justice because we know what he did to ensure that justice is done. Think about this with me here. Here is David, God's king, in 2 Samuel 21. He finds a case of injustice, and what does he do? He rightly makes sure that payment is made, and he offers up seven sons of Saul as atonement. The Bible uses that word, atonement. But unlike David, the Lord Jesus offered himself as the atonement price. And he was executed and exposed before God and all the people. Jesus' death on the cross brings together one of the great tensions of the Old Testament. How is it that God, at the same time, can love all who turn to Jesus and trust in him, find forgiveness and life in his name? It's an invitation the Bible issues to every single person in the world. Do you see how precisely God oversees justice? His cross justice is perfect. His coming justice will be just as thorough and just as complete. This passage teaches us, I think, to long for the return of the Lord Jesus. But it reminds me that in the meantime, in the meantime while we wait, we too are supposed to be people of justice. Because God cares about justice, so we do too. And here's where the challenge comes, isn't it? Doesn't it? Followers of Jesus cannot ignore justice. As hard as, and confusing as overwhelming it is, this is the standard by which God is going to evaluate human government. What does God expect human government to do? He expects them to be ministers of justice, Romans 13 says. And as a voter, I'm responsible for those men and women. God hates, God hates governors and attorneys general and presidents who will not pursue justice. And, and I must not vote for men and women who will not pursue justice. But it's not easy. Which of the two main political parties in the United States best embodies justice? Huh. So uh, President Trump, when he was running, promised justice, didn't he? He promised it was a chant at his rallies that he would enforce justice, that he would lock her up that he would lock her up. How is Mrs. Clinton enjoying prison food these days? Was he lying? Was he just using that as a campaign slogan because he knew people would would respond to it and vote for him over that? Did he just say that because he knew it would be popular, but now it's inconvenient? Or does he not really believe that she deserves to be there? Or is it some... Deep State Justice Department conspiracy. And now, now, now in our own country, here we have uh, 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 a whole har- army of lawyers that are combing through his, uh, the president's life to find evidence of collusion. All these details and stories and accusations and, and counter accusations. So, which party best embodies justice? you know why there 's followers of Jesus in both parties because neither one gets this very well there are there are uh, uh, issues and situations that are beyond my control and beyond my power I don't know about these pastors and churches that I mentioned a while ago I, I, I'm not involved I don't know any of the people that were involved personally in them I really can't form an educated opinion I've really tried to because you know, there's books on my shelf by some of these men should I recommend them, should I pass them out I don't know, I, I, I read all these things and I just can't make any decision. I don't even have a control or influence over these things so what do I do? I think that my responsibility before God is to work and act within my own sphere of influence. What can I do within my own sphere of influence to promote the cause of justice? And I want to suggest to you four ways to do that as we finish here this morning. To live a life of justice in the sphere to which God has called you. Four ways. Number one, love your neighbor as yourself. You like that? It's original to me, actually. Love your neighbor. Pursue justice for the people who are closest to you, the ones you actually know, the people who live near you, the people that you see, the people you have interaction with, the people you work with, maybe people who are of a different ethnicity or nationality or different age or economic status or occupation. Think about justice for the people that are as closest to you as possible. Number two refuse to contribute to the rage. Refuse to contribute to the rage. Our world is filled with rage about justice. That's all the the issue now, justice and injustice. Most of it's online. There are social media rage. Raging on social media doesn't fix any problems at all. And actually, I think it just distracts you from real justice for the people that are really close to you. So can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, just to resign from the rage? Here's number three. Remember the poor. Remember the poor. This is our special calling as followers of Christ. We give special attention to the poor. It's part of our budget. We have a line item in our budget to remember the poor. It's part of our church covenant. When we read it together, we will remember the poor. This is our special concern as followers of Jesus. And related to that, number four, I want to encourage you to extend special efforts to the forgotten special efforts to the forgotten, those that society most often neglects. Who does our society neglect? Well, I mentioned the poor, the aged, immigrants, children, the unborn, the sick, the disabled, the weak, the poorly educated. This is where followers of Jesus shine, and this is where they have historically shown in in the world in, in showing Special efforts of, of care and concern for these forgotten. This is where we, we make the most influence. So start here. Mark your circle of influence. Make your circle of influence as just as possible. Who are the victims of injustice that are closest to you? Help them first and then move on to the next person and the next person. This is what we who represent Jesus do is how we do this most carefully and most well. Do this while we wait for the Lord Jesus to come back. Let's join with the Apostle John this morning and ask him to come soon. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and this is a looming and massive issue to think about justice. Sometimes we get, we get tired of hearing about it because of, of people who are, well, it's discouraging because of the vast cases of injustice. And, and th- then there are people who talk about all kinds of strange things under the banner of justice. It, it's, it's discouraging and it's perplexing and it's overwhelming at times. We pick up the newspaper and we wonder what, what, what's going to happen in, in all these cases. So, Father, this morning, our, our greatest hope for justice is in the coming of the Lord Jesus. We, we sang it. Your justice is high like mountains. We sang that together this morning. And, and when the Lord Jesus comes, he will enact perfect, perfect justice. Lord, let that be a comfort this morning to us as we think about all of these thorny issues. Uh, Lord, would you use that to comfort those who are here this morning and have been victimized and and their abuser has, has never been called to account for it. Let them be comforted by the fact that the Lord Jesus is the one who doesn't break bruised reeds or snuff out smoldering wicks. The promise of his coming is for justice and so we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we do ask that you would help us though to be those who, who bring about justice in the circles, the spheres of influence that we have, the people that we know and that we see and that we love and that are near us. That we would be ministers of justice and, and ministers of grace and mercy to the forgotten and the overlooked. Lord, I'm grateful to you for the number of, of people who, who do that work as followers of the Lord Jesus in our world. And I, I pray that you would increase our, our vision, that we might see and increase our strength, that we might move to help those around us. Do this for your sake in anticipation of that great coming day of the Lord Jesus, we pray these things, saying, Amen.